0: Welcome to Psychedelic Science for the People. My name is Emily Feda, and I will be your guide as we attempt to better understand psychedelic medicine through conversations with scientists and researchers. When we started this podcast in 2019, our goal was to bring scientific research on cannabis to the people who need it most, patients, consumers, and industry professionals. Our goals haven't changed, but as you probably know, we're seeing a global renaissance in psychedelic research as well as a decriminalization movement in the U.S., it's never been more important to provide education on medicines like psilocybin, ayahuasca, LSD, MDMA, and ketamine. Before we get into today's episode, I need your help. We're raising money for season five to cover the costs associated with creating this podcast. We want to continue to make these long form, nuanced conversations about psychedelics and cannabis available and accessible for the people. I am linking our Indiegogo page below in the show notes, and I would be so grateful if you could support us. Please help us get a studio space. It just makes the sound quality so much better. Even 5 or $10 means the world. Thank you so much. Today, we are featuring Dr. Peter Grinspoon, who is a primary care physician, educator, and cannabis specialist at Massachusetts General Hospital, as well as an instructor at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Grinsman is a returning guest on this podcast, and today we talk about microdosing, particularly as it pertains to psilocybin, also known as magic mushrooms. Microdosing is a very hot topic right now, but there is pretty limited research about whether it is effective and whether it is safe in the long term. So in this episode, we talk about some of the studies that do exist, and Dr. Grinspoon shares some of the potential benefits of practicing microdosing, as well as some of the risks. He also gives some guidance on how to microdose safely if you do choose to engage in this practice, which, for the record, is still illegal in the majority of states in the U.S. We also get into the philosophy of ego annihilation and the differences between microdosing and macrodosing and how both of these practices can be used. Well, today we have a returning guest on the podcast, Dr. Peter Grinspoon. Um, so, Peter, thank you so much for joining us again. We're, we're really excited to, to dive into
1: this very different topic. Thanks for having me, Emily. Always happy to be on your podcast.
0: So for a person newer maybe to the psychedelic realm, how do you explain
1: microdosing? What does that even mean? Well, microdosing is taking a fraction of a... Dose like the regular dose of psychedelics, whether you're talking about classic psychedelics like psilocybin, magic mushrooms, or LSD, or some of the more exotic ones like uh, mescaline or DMT, uh, the regular dose involves hallucinating. And, you know, this can be very scary or it could be very rewarding and wonderful. A lot of people report mystical experiences that really help them. With their depression, their alcoholism, their OCD, it's really the therapeutic possibilities are amazing. But at the same time, some people have bad trips and have bad experiences. And so, what's become popular is like lower hanging fruit. Microdosing is taking like a fifth to a twentieth, typically like a tenth, of a dose that might co- that would cause hallucinations and this mystical experience, if you took the full dose, Uh, microdosing is just taking a fraction of the dose again, uh, about a 10th. So with mushrooms, instead of, um, you know, instead of like, you know, 10 grams, you take like one gram, except you take much lower. I'm just giving the mathematical equivalent. And um, with microdosing, people are trying to capture the benefits of psychedelics without taking the risk um of having a full psychedelic experience and also it's something that people feel like they could do every day or most days whereas a psychedelic experience you wouldn't want to do every day it's a really intense meaningful and exhausting experience to like hallucinate for four to eight hours so the microdosing people take um they really you know this was very popularized in silicon valley i guess about a decade ago but people People take uh, a tenth the dose of LSD, a tenth the dose of magic mushrooms, which the main ingredient of that is psilocybin, and they find that it helps with their mood, their anxiety, their energy level, and their uh, creativity. So that's, in a nutshell, uh, what microdosing is. I'm sure we'll discuss whether it works or not <laughs> later in the podcast, but that's my definition of microdosing.
0: hmm so in the article that you published on Harvard Health, which I'll link in the show notes, you, you mentioned two different studies. So the first one that I want to talk about was published in Nature. And, um, this was a natural observational design that studied 953 psilocybin microdosers. Um, and psilocybin referring to uh, the active ingredient in, in, mushrooms compared to 180 non-dosing participants. And they just observe their behavior for 30 days. So could you tell us a little bit more about this study and what did they find out and
1: what is your interpretation of this? Sure. Well, you know, the main problem with studying psychedelics is to factor out the placebo effect. Um, You know, if you take a pill that you think is going to make you happy and relaxed and more creative. it probably will take you make you more happy, feel more happy and relaxed and creative. And with a full dose of psychedelics, they have a really hard time with the blinding. You know, in a randomized controlled t- trial, the doctor and the patient are blinded to whether they're getting the active ingredient or the control so that there's no placebo effect, no expectancy effect. no I expect to do this, therefore it's going to do this. I mean, the placebo effect is really, really strong. It is not to be trifled with. And the main problem with like randomized controlled trials for like full doses of psychedelics is that people can guess whether or not they've been blinded. Most people, myself included, can tell the difference if I've been given a hundred micrograms of LSD or if I've been given a placebo pill, because like the walls are melting and the colors are vivid. (laughs) I mean, it's very, very different. Um, So with microdosing, it's really important to try to figure out if we're really going to try to figure out how, whether they work or not to do a uh, placebo-controlled blinded study. And the study you cited, if I recall correctly, I wrote the blog a couple months ago, but it when you it was just asking people if they had benefit, uh, which is a naturalistic study, which is real world data. It's a different type of data. but um and it, as I recall, showed a positive outcome. But again, it didn't enable us to, discern whether the positive outcome was actually from the microdosing and, you know, the psychedelics, which do tickle your serotonin receptors, which could make you happier, more relaxed, more creative, less anxious, or whether it's just this, this expectancy effect of I'm going to take this and I've heard from everybody that it's going to make me happier and more relaxed and more creative. And then they feel happier and more relaxed and more creative. So that study was interesting in that it showed a benefit, but it was also sort of flawed in that it didn't uh, factor out the placebo effect. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. And I have some follow-up questions on that, but first let's also talk about the other study that you referenced, which actually was a double-blind placebo-controlled test, um, micro-dosing with psilocybin mushrooms. Uh, And in this study, researchers took 34 patients and randomized half of them to receive psilocybin and half to placebo. And it sounded like in this study, there was actually no objective evidence of improvements in creativity or cognitive function. Um, so yeah. So, so how did you interpret this study, especially when you compare it to kind of this naturalistic observational
1: design study? Well, I genuinely want to believe that microdosing works because a lot of my friends do it and it helped and they feel that it helps them. But if you have a randomized control trial of microdosing, and again, nobody can guess whether they're in the placebo group or not, or it's very difficult because we're not using like full doses of psychedelics. Nobody's, you know, the walls aren't melting. Um, And this was, these randomized controlled trials are specifically um, designed to factor out the placebo effect, the expectancy effect. And what I I will, I will mention that this is a small study. I mean, it's 30 or so people, not, you know, 2000, but it really didn't show um, much of a benefit. And you know, this was a smaller study, but on the other hand, uh, it was a better study because it factored out exactly what some people suspect, which is microdosing is primarily mediated by the placebo effect, which, again, is not a minor effect by any means. Uh, doctors used to use placebos all the time to treat patients. Now they don't let us because they say it's unethical because... the patient's not having informed consent if they're just getting a placebo and they think they're getting a medication. But so I thought this study was actually a little stronger than the other study just for the reasons I've just mentioned. And that's sort of, the jury's definitely still out, but that study contributed to the side of casting doubt as to whether microdosing actually works.
0: So you mentioned that microdosing does tickle your serotonin receptors, but is there really any evidence at this point that suggests that microdosing modulates your serotonin levels like in a significant way, especially if you're using it consistently, let's say three days per week or more?
1: I don't think it's been studied very carefully. And I don't think we have good data one way or the other. They are studying macrodosing like crazy because it's really incredibly effective for like treatment resistant depression. And again, many other indications like post you know, trauma, PTSD, alcoholism, OCD. So I think everybody's studying macrodosing. And I don't think there, I think there are some studies in the works, but I just don't think we the, the jury's still out on whether microdosing actually works or not. You you talk to people, I talk to friends, uh, I talk to colleagues, and they're like, absolutely it works, no question. And you know, I'm inclined on the one hand to believe them, but I also wish we did have better data because again, you just can't under, you make a mistake if you underestimate the placebo effect. Let me just tell you a brief story about the placebo effect. My dad was a psychiatrist. He was actually a legendary psychiatrist in the world of cannabis and psychedelics, but he also was like this an excellent, spectacular psychiatrist. And, and we were flying somewhere and on the plane, this woman started freaking out and having an anxiety attack. She was afraid of flying but she never told anybody so they you know announced is there a doctor on the flight and my dad stands up of course and they asked him to sit next to her and to treat her and they kept asking do we have to turn back do we have to land the plane and my dad gave her a pill and he said this is going to make you feel sleepy and fall asleep in about 15 minutes and then he just sat next to her and was sort of generally reassuring and within 15 minutes she was snoozing and she snoozed for the whole flight. And they were so grateful they didn't have to turn the flight around. And all my dad gave her was from his medicine kit. He had an old fashioned medicine bag that he carried around, kind of quaint, cute, um, was a sugar pill. And we're not allowed to do that anymore, again, because people think it interferes with informed consent if you're just giving a sugar pill. But the fact is, the placebo effect really does work. And... So we need more studies very desperately because uh, a lot of people are spending a lot of money. And I actually know a couple of people that have had very bad reactions to microdosing. Uh, one a woman that I know uh, couldn't sleep for like, weeks and then ended up on like, you know, sleeping pills. And it was just a a, kind of a nightmare. So it's not an entirely benign thing and it would be good to have better evidence. So I'm looking forward to the new studies coming out whenever they do come out and giving us some more guidance about not only like binary, does microdosing work or not work, but you know, maybe use a fifth of a regular dose, which would still be sub-perceptual instead of a 10th or a 20th. Maybe they give us guidelines on how to do it more efficiently and more effectively.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, I do feel like it almost has to be a very personal experiment at this point, because especially with the placebo effect and and in my experience with microdosing, which which has been pretty limited, but I went into a very positive, very intentional thinking, oh, this is going to, so I'm going to be more creative. I'm going to you know be more open and have just be more alive in a sense. And that was my experience, but not in the way that I wanted or expected. Like it really actually just made everything that I felt more intense. So I, for example, in the morning, like before, usually I drink coffee and if I don't drink coffee, I get a little bit of a headache and I had this insane migraine from not drinking coffee. And then I had, you know, some sadness come up, but, but, what the, the microdose did for me was actually enhance everything that I was feeling. So it's interesting. I, I feel like you talk a lot about the placebo effect, but I think there's also some element of set and setting. And I don't necessarily mean like where you are, but I think that can infect it, affect it as well. But there also, for me, from my experience, it seems to be like, what are you bringing into this day? What are you bringing into this experience? I wonder yeah. if you have any, yeah, any I thoughts on that
1: I lots of thought. I agree with everything you said. First of all, if I don't drink coffee, I'm a basket case. But that's <laughs> there. Um, I agree with everything you said. Um, you know, the times I've tried microdosing, I just can't tell if it helps or not. And I've experimented with very low doses and like higher doses. When I take higher doses, like the trees are definitely prettier. <laughs> everything takes on that like psychedelic green glow, uh, which is really kind of beautiful. But um, I could Can't really tell for myself, but there are so many people that I've spoken with that feel vividly and concretely that they've had an impact from microdosing and are convinced that it helps. That again, I'm looking forward to more data, but again, I wouldn't be surprised if the data shows that it did make things more vivid, as you say, and make people a little bit more in touch with their feelings and sort of. What a macro dose of psychedelics does is it sort of allows parts of your brain that don't ordinarily connect with each other to kind of connect with each other. So you have new, interesting thoughts, experiences, perceptions, sensations that you wouldn't ordinarily have. And, you know, the wonder is, does there have to be a threshold? Do you have to take a certain dose for the different parts of your brain to communicate with each other? Or with microdosing, dosing, this, do these different parts of your brain communicate with each other, but just in a quieter way, So, that, but you still do feel things more vividly and see things a little bit more color colorfully and 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 feel things a little bit more intensely. You know, we 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 just don't know yet. But again, I've spoken to so many people that have had good experiences with it. It's it's very hard to dismiss despite that one negative, small randomized controlled trial.
0: Yes, I agree completely. And I know so many people who speak so positively about it. So I'm curious to try it again and, and and to kind of like record my own experience and my own data. And, and I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, whatever you're experiencing in your life in that moment is going to affect how you experience that, that little, you know, that microdose. So no, it could vary, absolutely. you know, on a day-to-day basis, on a monthly basis. And um,
1: yeah. We'll, we'll, I mean, Emily, that's a point that really needs to be emphasized. Like, Norman Zinberg, one of the many fixtures of my childhood, because my dad was involved in the legalization movement his whole life, um, came up with the concept of set and setting. And set and setting, you know, just, for example, is so important when you take a regular dose of psychedelics. It's also really important with cannabis. You don't want to be in an anxiety-provoking setting. I mean, cannabis is a psychedelic at high doses, and you just want to watch the dose and not be in a stressful situation. But set and setting, you don't want to be at like a, Complicated social event on acid. You might want to be in the woods with your friends, with someone who's not tripping to put out any fires if anything comes up. I mean, set and setting is so important to all drug experiences, especially cannabis and psychedelics. And there's no reason to believe that set and setting isn't equally important for microdosing, except people do tend to microdose like on most days. So, you know, the set and setting for like a macrodose would be like, I'm going to meet a friend in the woods and we're going to do mushrooms and have a great day and talk about life. The set and setting for a microdose might just be, you're going to work because it's sub perceptual, it's non impairing. So I agree with you, the set and setting is like critically important, but I just want to point out that like a lot of the set and setting for people who are microdosing is like their daily life or their work or the normal weekend, because they do it most days of the week. Uh, I think a lot of people take two days off, five days on, everybody has a different regimen. And you don't have as much control over set and setting. If you're like going to work, your boss could get mad at you. I'm a doctor. A patient could slam the door because I don't prescribe opiates or don't give them a, you know, handicap placard because, you know, they just ran a triathlon a couple of days ago. You know, I mean, you just don't control the set and setting. So I agree it's really important. But if you do something like once in a while, you could kind of control it. But if you do it most days, you don't have as much control over it.
0: Yes, I agree completely, and I think I think that is that does create this additional variable in that we we can't control, we can't control. And I think a lot of us, when we're microdosing, yeah, we're going to work or running errands or, you know, I definitely made the mistake of microdosing and then going to the airport. So we <laughs> exactly. have to, so,
1: so like yeah, you would never thing. do that with a regular dose. Like no, of course not. Of course, not. The last not. place you'd want to be. That would be almost a guarantee of like the wrong, set, trip. like, like a bad trip. <laughs> Going mm-hmm. through the security line in the airport. So yeah, no sentence setting is critical, but you know this is we're agreeing. Like you don't really have as much control of it if you're doing it most days.
0: Mm-hmm, exactly, and that segues to the next topic that I want to discuss, which I think is so many of us are accustomed to kind of this Western modality of medicine and uh, allopathic medicine, where you're diagnosed with um, you know a disease or a sickness, and then you take a pill in hopes that you feel better, in hopes that the symptoms improve, and what's so critical to emphasize about psychedelics is that that this is not how this works, you know, especially plants, like every plant is a little bit different. Uh, and, when you're taking a macro dose, especially, I mean, these plants offer such great healing. But it's not within this framework that you just feel better. Like oftentimes, you unearth trauma you you have feelings come up that you were trying to avoid. You you realize things about yourself that you know self knowledge is not always good news. So, I think when we look at this, how psychedelics affect us, um, and then we almost so so. I guess my question is does the the framework for microdosing almost feels to me in some way, like we're taking this completely different beast and almost trying to mold it within this framework of taking a pill daily or three days a week or five days a week to feel better, to improve our symptoms. And I think what a lot of people are looking for really is perhaps a replacement for antidepressants or SSRIs, or maybe a replacement for ADHD medicine to improve focus. So, do you think that microdosing can can offer us this? Or are we just so accustomed to this framework and this way of thinking that the we're just trying to put psychedelics into this mold that maybe doesn't work?
1: Well, Emily, that was about six questions. So <laughs> let me know if I don't answer them all. But you know, it's interesting. I've been, you know, sort of firmly ensconced in the allopathic medicine as a primary care doctor. For the last 25 years. Um, at the same time, I've been exposed to this. I mentioned before the show that like, my dad wrote a book on psychedelics when I was 13, and my dad was a huge advocate for legalizing medical cannabis his entire career. So I've always had a foot in both worlds. Um, I've also never understood, frankly, why it has to be one or the other. Why can't you take what's good about allopathic medicine and reject what's bad about it? And take what's good about sort of more naturalistic medicine and reject what's bad about it. I never understood why. I mean, I sort of understand historically and it's all about money and market share, but I don't understand like intellectually or practically why we can't borrow and choose whatever we think works from both, both traditions. And, you know, what you're saying about like the kind of um, difficulty in sort of reconciling uh, botanical medicines like psychedelics for cannabis with, um, or, um, with allopathic medicines, like the FDA has no idea how to regulate cannabis. It's got 500 different components. It's, um, you know, there's been a lot of nonsense about it in the drug war. It's very complicated. And, and, you know, it is interesting, uh, with microdosing. I mean, I don't think that people who started microdosing um and started the trend and the people that do it now are thinking i'm gonna do this so that i can have a way to mimic allopathic medicine i think it's more like it's just more practical like if you take a macro once a month that's a very very intense and exhausting experience if you take a microdose, it is something you could do every day and i think there is a big hunger you know the ssris that everybody's on they only work in about a third of people they have sexual side effects they people don't like being on them and you know i always try to take people off them and if they say i was feeling better on the ssri i'll put them back on but i don't think they should be for life like we start these things and we never stop them uh sort of like a friend of mine wrote a paper don't take off if you don't know how to land that was about opiates they're starting people on opiates but the same is true with ssris and i think there's a big hunger for cannabis and psychedelics for a sort of a reaction to the like rigidity of allopathic medicine and the lim- limitations, uh, to include botanical and alternative medicines into their daily practice. And, you know, you could do this in a much safer way or a much less safe way. You could do it in a more educated way and in a less educated way. But I, I do agree with you taking a microdose every day on the one hand does feel like taking perhaps your Zoloft or your Prozac every day, but on the other hand, you're not just looking for to alleviate depression, you're looking for enhancement, to enhance your sensations, your feeling, your mood, your creativity. So I think on the one hand, it does resemble it. But on another hand, um, people are looking for slightly different things. And then finally, uh, people are very interested in in natural or botanical solutions, uh, rather than big getting clubbed, getting just like drugged with big pharma, like medicine after medicine after medicine. Now, I'm a big fan in some senses of all the pharmaceuticals we have, because it really helps me control people's blood pressure and cholesterol and stuff like that. But I think I recognize, and I've been involved in medical cannabis for the last quarter century, that people wanted a choice. And I believe that we give people a choice. It's up to them where we make the decision together. And that's how you really empower people.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great answer. And I, I do think, I don't necessarily think we need to see these things as, as either or. Um, if I break my leg, I'm definitely turning to, <laughs> to allopathic medicine. No, if um, you get
1: cancer, you get an oncologist. If mm-hmm. you have mushroom vomiting from the chemotherapy, you use cannabis. It's like very simple. They both have a lot to offer. Mm-hmm.
0: Right, right. And I think, of course, to me, I think we see. Um, more successful results in patients when they do feel free to combine different treatment options and to look for answers in different worlds, rather than saying, "Oh, you have to be on one side or the other." But but I do wonder too, sometimes, just when we're so accustomed to one way of thinking, if like we when, when the next when when the next medicine arrives, we we still
1: interpret it through this framework almost subconsciously. So well, I agree, but it's not just the patients; it's uh, the doctors. Like, exactly. Doctors know nothing about cannabis. They're like woefully behind the patients. It's really awful. And I'm working to try to rectify that. And, you know, the psychiatrist, as I mentioned, when my dad wrote his book in 1979, Psychedelic Drugs Reconsidered, calling for the use of psychedelics in psychiatry, like, you know, shouting from the rooftops, he was really sort of persecuted for it. There were several articles about the fact that Harvard never promoted them and a bunch of other stuff, it's sort of complicated. But um, and the fact is like in the last five years, all the psychiatrists have gone against from being against psychiatrists uh, from being against psychedelics to being pro psychedelics. It's like incredible shift. And, You know, I just sort of joke about like how like 10 years ago they were like, golly gee, that's illegal. You can't use that. And now they're like, both with cannabis and psychedelics, now they're like, hey, let's do some acid and do some therapy, man. You know, it's really funny how they've changed, but I just don't think doctors... I think certain psychiatrists are that have taken an interest in this, but I don't think your average doctor and your average psychiatrist knows much about anything beyond like traditional allopathic medicine. Now there's plenty to know with traditional allopathic medicine, and these are very educated people. But I think in order for patients to have a more uh, broad perspective on this, we also need the doctors to, which is going to require a ton of education so that they could have sensible and meaningful conversations with their patients.
0: hmm Yes, I agree completely. So, if someone is interested or curious about microdosing, um, especially with either psilocybin or, or actually cannabis as well, like, I do feel like cannabis is a great um, option for microdosing. Do you have any? Do you have any guidelines in terms of um, what you, what recommendations you would make? Whether that's in terms of dosing or set and setting?
1: Well, start low and go slow. Be very careful on the dose because you don't want to accidentally take a full dose of LSD before work <laughs> as opposed to taking a tenth of a dose. Um, ideally, if you could find a healthcare provider that knows something about it, work with a healthcare provider or someone in the community that's knowledgeable about these things. A lot of people have sort of taken the lead just in the community. Uh, you know, some are shamans, but some are like just psychedelic uh, therapists and work with someone. Uh, who is knowledgeable about this, and make sure that you have a safe supply. Remember, magic mushrooms, psilocybin, you know, really helpful for treatment-resistant depression. You know, nobody overdoses on it or gets addicted to it. The worst that could happen is you could have a bad trip, which is a big deal, but it's still schedule one. It's locked away according to the Controlled Substance Act. So if you get it, obtain it, unless you're one of the minority of people who uh, enroll in a trial in a hospital which is a really good thing to do but i think they're very oversubscribed you have to buy it illegally in the gray market and you just have to be so careful about the quality the purity and the dose because you don't want to screw it up i think for people who are very knowledgeable and experienced with psychedelics sort of find a way to get them and a lot of people now are growing and giving them away so there there is more of a supply safe supply of mushrooms and With the decriminalization measure that's going to be in Massachusetts in November, which we're going to win, we're going to crush them because, of course, they should be decriminalized. Because why would you want law enforcement involved in this at all? They just make everything worse. If you have any type of problem and then you get law enforcement involved, then you have the problem you still had and an entanglement with law enforcement, which makes your problems 10 times worse. So hopefully they're going to be legalized in Massachusetts and in more and more states. And uh, for example, as part of the um referendum in November, you're allowed to, to grow them and gift them, not to sell them, but to gift them. But there are a lot of psychedelic enthusiasts out there. And I think we're gonna the more we peel back the drug war and the more we decriminalize these things, the more we demystify them. We make them safer across the board. We make it so that if someone has trouble or has a bad experience, they could actually call for help and not worry about getting in trouble. But we're also improving the supply and people need a really safe supply. So there are a checklist of things you have to do, um, but it's certainly doable. Certainly like, you know, I think hundreds of thousands to like, probably hundreds of thousands of people in this country are microdosing. So people find a way, but it's always good to be an educated consumer, especially if you're dealing with something that's illegal and sold on the illicit market.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's, that's great advice. And another, another question um, that has come up for me from, from my own personal experience with microdosing is that I think what, what can happen sometimes is, is in my experience is that yes, like I have had feelings of increased creativity, but I feel that my ego is still very present with these smaller micro doses, which is a huge difference from that macro dose where you really can have that complete ego annihilation and you feel just very much in your, your higher self. Um, so, and you mentioned too, which, um, you know, microdosing was popularized in, in Silicon Valley, so I'm wondering when when we look at microdosing our, our egos are just very very tricky. So when we use microdosing on a daily basis maybe to be more creative but but we're still very much kind of in that ego space. Do you think the I guess part of my my fear or curiosity around this is like could we just be using these plants like um, and, and these micro to be creative, but just to be creative in the service of our egos, like maybe someone in Silicon Valley is, and I don't want this to sound too judgmental, but maybe someone in Silicon Valley is just using it with kind of a world domination plan or wants to figure out how to make the app more, addi- their app more addictive. Yeah, more
1: addictive.
0: Or, yeah well, we're using very- it in service of capitalism. We're using it in service of oppressive systems. So I- I'm just wondering, this is more of a philosophical question. I-, I know you're a physician, but but I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on this.
1: Well, luckily I studied philosophy in college, so (laughs) I can handle philosophical questions. You know, um, if you take a macrodose, part of what happens is there's less blood flow to your default mode network, which is the default mode network is sort of, roughly speaking, different terminology, the ego, the part of your brain that like gets stuff done and organizes things and gets you through your daily life. And that gets sort of rebooted because it loses blood flow and it allows all these other parts of your brain to communicate with each other. And, you know, people who ruminate and have anxiety and think the same negative thoughts over and over again, it could help really dismantle that aspect of the ego, which is very harmful and very destructive. And, you know, I've had a few psychedelic experiences where my ego has been pretty much obliterated. And it's honestly, I I know that maybe 10% of people have bad trips, but I've just had excellent experiences and I felt like it helped me really grow and change as a person and become more like empathic, present and connected. Now, you know, microdosing is sort of like lower hanging fruit again. It's like you don't get as much benefit, but you don't get as much risk. And I agree, you know, when you're microdosing, you're most people doing it like most days or many days. And, you know, if you're going to work or, what and again, it's not—it's subperceptual, so it's not dangerous to do these things. I don't think I'd actually microdose before be, my doctor job because a that would be very stressful, and b I wouldn't want to take any risk of like being impaired. But generally speaking, the dose is so low, it's not impairing. And you know, certainly the ego—you'd imagine—could get in the way. There's less room for creativity when you're thinking about, all right, I have to get to work for a nine o'clock meeting and then I have to get this report in by 11, as opposed to like when you're walking in the woods is looking at how beautiful the trees are. So I agree with you that the ego can be um, sort of an obstacle, but, you know, I think that's part of the point of microdosing is finding a way to like sort of integrate it into your daily life as opposed to taking these like rare excursions into mystical experiences and hope. That something hangs over and lasts and helps guide you, so I think it's it's definitely a trade off. And I think you're absolutely right. There there would be much less room for like personal growth and creativity if you're taking a microdose and you're like you know just taking care of your shopping list or doing your laundry or whatever. But um, you know a lot of people find it really really helpful. And you know it's not one size fit all it fits all. Some people are gonna really go for the like the macrodose and the personal growth once in a while and other people are going to want the microdose because they feel it helps them. And I think, you know, both should be legal. I mean, we're entitled to experiment with our consciousness as long as we're not harming other people. And as long as we're doing it responsibly, so certainly they need to be legal and we need a safer supply. But I agree with you. The ego would definitely limit the sort of creativity that you get having experienced both States. The ego seems to, to definitely limit the creativity, but It also, you know, there's some argument about whether psychedelic therapy should be done like in a beautiful retreat in Jamaica or Costa Rica, assuming anybody could afford that, or whether it should be done in Mass General Hospital, where you drive in and there's traffic and then you do it for a few hours and then you are pop right back into your life. And some people argue that it's like much more naturalistic and therapeutic to be in a beautiful environment. Other people say you should do this in the context of your daily life so that it actually pertains to your daily life. It's not like some fever dream in a beautiful area that, and then you come back to all the traffic around MGH. So I think with macro dosing and micro dosing, you know, the advantage slash disadvantage is that the micro dosing is done within the context of your daily life. So you probably get less benefit, but it pro- any benefit you get is probably very directly relevant and helpful.
0: That's such a great point. That's such a great point. And that's something that I do think about with these macro doses. Oftentimes, um, the the hardest part is really the integration. It's exactly what you're saying. It's this almost fever dream of (laughs) so many things feel possible and then you go back to the daily grind or your job and it's like, wait a minute. <laughs> like I was just experiencing this ultimate love for, for the whole universe. And now my boss is yelling at me. How, how do I know? Well,
1: exactly. You? But, 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 but would it would be better to do it at like a hospital in the downtown and like you're there for four hours and then you're like taking the subway home. It's like, it just seems like that's like a set and setting is so important. And that's so much more hostile or set in setting than being in the woods. So I just think that they're interesting arguments on both sides.
0: Mm-hmm. I agree. And I do think this goes back to your earlier point of, you know, why why do we have to choose? Because of course, I think people who have chronic illness or people who are terminally ill who are in hospice or in the hospital, you know, I, I would love to see psychedelics available and accessible for, for these demographics. But of course, I mean, there is something there is something so special and and important about us connecting with with nature the natural world when we're having these experiences too so we don't feel that sense of separation that we so often feel when we're living in cities or you know in
1: in daily life absolutely and one thing i feel very strongly about is that psychedelics just like medical cannabis can't just be for rich people that would be a fail on every level like i work as a primary care doctor in an inner city clinic and a lot of my patients have to decide, do I buy food or medicine? Like they're very poor. We we got slaughtered during the COVID pandemic because nobody could afford to social distance or did not take the subway, public transportation. And, you know, I worry about like these retreats and they're great, but you have to pay $5,000 for them or whatever. And nobody has, most people don't have that kind of money. So I just think we're going to, I think I'm going to weigh in on the side of a psychedelics being decriminalized so that people can just take them in the woods with their friends. That doesn't cost anything. And B um, not have them be just like these spectacular retreats. I mean, you know, no one's going to make those illegal, but not have the emphasis be on these spectacular retreats that only the top 1% of the population can afford. I just don't think, I think it's a social justice issue as well.
0: I agree completely. I agree completely. I think that is, and that is the the biggest the biggest obstacle <laughs> right now is, and not just because. And I think, of course, this will ha- this will be really important to think as the legislation shifts and change, but also because I mean, I think when we talk about set and setting, it's not just about the you know if the room and the music and the comfy pillows. It's also what is the risk for you in taking this medicine. You know, if you're a white, if you're an affluent white person, and you take acid in the woods with your friends, like, you know, probably everything's going to be okay. But, you know, if you're living in a black community, like you could go to jail for, for years and years, your entire life. So the set and setting for, um y- you know, based people of color and white people is actually extremely different when it comes to using this, the psychedelic medicine and, and the risk as it stands is, is a lot higher
1: for, for people. Yeah, absolutely. The risk is much higher. Just poverty is so stressful. And a lot of my patients are undocumented immigrants, and just the crushing weight of poverty makes the sentence setting very difficult. But a lot of these people have been very traumatized. A lot of them are refugees. They've been traumatized in their home countries, or they've been traumatized here. And in some ways, the poorest among us could use these therapies the most, yet at the same time, it's impossible to understand, as you're saying, how they can get, And you know, a you know, welcoming enough set and setting, and and how anybody can afford them. So you know, it's just that uh, we have a lot of work still to do. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree completely. Another question that I have is combining macrodose and microdosing treatment, and whether this is, yeah, what well, what kind of results? What kind of results do you think? um would come up like like do you think do you think to microdose regularly because I've just heard different stories. I've just heard you know different sides of the coin, different opinions, but I've heard that microdosing regularly, you know, you also want to take a macro dose, let's say every once in a while to um enhance that microdosing experience. Do you do you have an opinion on this or or is there any yeah, research that you apply to opinion. that suggests kind of
1: no research I can point to uh, hopefully they're doing it. But I mean, remember this is all pretty new, this research and this whole kind of uh, popularity of the psychedelics. Um, you know, they've been on kind of under the shadow of the drug war until about 10 years ago. But I think many people that microdose and who macrodose tend to be psychedelic enthusiasts. So I think that people who microdose tend to macrodose just because they like psychedelics. And I could certainly see how they would work well together. If you feel that like the macrodose really helped you with your creativity and your connection to nature and your connection to other people and your trauma and your emotions, and you could feel how the microdose could help keep the momentum going. I don't know if there's any data for that. As we talked earlier, there's not even any definitive data that microdosing works. The other thing is if, if you do mushrooms every day, they sort of stop working because you rapidly get tolerance to them, you're not supposed to do them two days in a row, And You're not supposed to, um, supposed to do them more than like every two or three weeks. Yeah, I, that that would be an awful lot, from my opinion, to do it every two to three weeks. But in terms of biologically, in terms of them working, you're not really supposed to do them more than every two or three weeks. And you wonder if if you microdose every day, if that would enhance or in some ways uh, minimize the experience that you'd have macrodosing because you'd have tolerance. Uh, They work in the serotonin receptors. It's pretty well known that if you're on an SSRI um, and you take a macrodose, it's not going to have nearly as strong effect as if you're off an SSRI. In fact, some people who work with this stuff get people off their SSRIs. Um, just to make it so they can have a macrodose and you worry about all these college students that are like, Hey, I'm going to treat myself with, you know, mushrooms. I'm going to go off my antidepressants. So it's definitely something to be concerned about, but I, you know, so I, I wonder if the microdosing would, would boost the macrodosing, if it actually does help your creativity and connectedness, or if it would minimize the macrodose because you get tolerant to the medication so quickly. Oh, or if that's too low a dose to get tolerant. These are all questions that need to be researched, which I can only speculate on and, and don't have actual answers to.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes. And if you are microdosing regularly, you mentioned this in your article as well. Um, that if you are microdosing regularly, there could be diminishing returns and you would have to increase the dosage in order to have an effect.
1: No, absolutely. We don't know, but that's certainly. Plausible. I mean, that, that's true for many, many medications. And that's true again with macro dosing, you could only do it so often, or the receptors are, you know, played out and you don't get much effect. Um, and again, with the SSRIs, you don't get nearly as much effect. I, I've actually, i get in trouble for saying this, but I've actually been in an SSRI and taken a dose of mushrooms and had it not do very much. So I agree. I'm completely convinced, you know, there's no substitute for lived experience that. SSRIs can minimize it. And again, we just don't know what microdosing does to macrodosing, the experience, the phenomenology. Um, you know, I'm sure a lot of people have a lot of very, very strong opinions, but I just don't think it's actually been studied.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you think there is any way to almost wean yourself off of SSRIs using a, a psilocybin microdosing treatment plan?
1: Well, you can definitely wean yourself off an SSRI with or without an psilocybin microdosing treatment plan you know i again i don't put people most ssris are prescribed by primary care doctors not psychiatrists just because we see so many more patients and you know unfortunately people end up like end up getting stuck in these things and like just because you needed it when you're 25 doesn't mean you need it when you're 40 so i like to give people the option if people are like, I'm happy taking it. I don't care. I'm not going to force anybody to do anything, but give them an option to try to very slowly taper off the SSRI and and see how they feel. And a lot of the times they feel the same, if not better. Occasionally they feel like, wow, I felt like my genuine self on the medication and I want to go back on it. But certainly it's an interesting idea because they both tickle the serotonin receptors, even though it might be different like subsets of the serotonin receptors. If people want to get off SSRIs, you could potentially, it makes sense kind of pharmacologically to facilitate that process of microdosing. But again, this, I don't think it's been studied, so you can only speculate.
0: Mm -hmm. I do wonder too, just to go back to your original point on the placebo effect, If having a, because I think sometimes these SSRIs, they almost become like a a crutch, you know, like, and the fear of going off of them is probably bigger than maybe the actual, you know, physiological effect um, of the shift in serotonin that happens. So, so I wonder too, you know, if you did have a microdosing, if you had a plan to microdose as you were weaning yourself off, if that would kind of help with just the fear, which I, I, I completely relate to the fear of, oh my God, like I've been on this for so long and I've relied on this for so long. How do I move through that fear?
1: Well, not just the fear, but the withdrawal symptoms, people withdraw mm. from SSRIs. Um, you know, they 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 withdraw, and they you know, some of them are vicious, like Effexor Venlafaxine. If you skip it for a day or two, you can feel really, really bad. So you have to really go slow getting people off SSRIs. And I think that'd be really interesting to try with um microdosing, but of course, microdosing' is illegal. It's, you know, complex for a physician to um recommend a patient use a illegal drug that he or she can't prescribe that can only be bought. On the illicit market that's currently a schedule one controlled substance. So it's not, you know, from the point of view of like the adult in the room, the physician, it's not the easiest thing in the world. Mm
0: -hmm. Right, right. Yeah, I do feel like these conversations are very highly theoretical because no, (laughs) I don't think there would be any psychiatrists in the US.
1: Psychiatrists that specialize in psychedelics and I think they feel pretty comfortable um, talking about this stuff. But again, you know, it's this dubious. Is it? I can't say I've never done it before, but you don't love to tell people to do illegal things because then if they get in trouble, it makes their life worse. And again, this is where decriminalizing would go a great length. I mean, people are doing this just like cannabis. People do it anyways. Why criminalize something that people do anyways? That just creates criminals and criminal records and you know arrests and it affects your employment and your education and your student loans and your housing. Like The whole war on drugs this is a whole other podcast topic, but... The whole war on drugs is actually making all of this drug war use, which people are doing anyways, with good benefit in most cases, not all cases, um, more dangerous. And you have to ask yourself, why on earth are we doing this? And what are the segments of our society that are still pushing this prohibition, which has been such a colossal failure? Mm-hmm.
0: No, absolutely. Absolutely. And it, yeah, it just makes it very difficult for people to feeling control of their own, you know, their own mental health and choosing the medicines that make the most sense for them. And there's been so much propaganda
1: against all these drugs, cannabis and psychedelics. And now we're like reversing course. But it's like someone has obesity. We don't tell them ice cream is poisonous to try to scare them away from using eating ice cream. (laughs) We just don't. It's like a crazy thing to do. But that's what we've done with all the drugs.
0: Mm hmm. Right, right and I think obviously you know we kind of actually do the opposite in a lot of ways like with the advertising around dairy products advertising for alcohol. So it, it really I mean when we see how much industry and how much money affects our laws in the United States and what is legal and what is not legal um yeah it's actually pretty terrifying.
1: It's just weird too all the pharmaceutical ads on TV. Mm-hmm. Like I heard about like, they don't have that in Europe. And apparently there was a soccer game (laughs) where they like had American ads because it was on an American station and the Europeans were exposed to these pharmaceutical ads. And they were just like, what the fuck is this? I mean, we were used to it, but it's so bizarre that they can, I have patients coming in saying, I want medicine X. And it's like, well, there's no evidence that it's better than the medicine Y you're taking. It costs 40 times as much and we don't know if it's safe, but people see it on TV and they think it's a good idea.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've heard that the United States and I think New Zealand are the only countries in the world that allow pharmaceutical advertising. I'm not sure if that's
1: still true. Yeah, hey, actually, no, I, I, I've heard that as well. Um, we shouldn't have advertising for big pharma, for tobacco, for alcohol, or for cannabis, or eventually for psychedelics. None of these things need advertising. I'm. They all should be legal or at least decriminalized, but I don't think we necessarily want to need to, like, increase the use by, like presenting a rosy picture as we necessarily would do in advertising.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, to kind of wrap up here, um, I guess more of like a, a technical question. Do you, when it comes to um, actually consuming, when it comes to microdosing, dosing, um, do you have any recommendations in terms of, is it better to well, I don't want to say better, but have you heard people have better experiences with actually just, you know, using the, the raw plant or actually processing it into a, a tincture so it's a more consistent um, dose every day? Do you have any opinions on actually like the, the best way to consume or, or to microdose when we're well, talking about
1: mushrooms? or? The most important thing is to have a safe source and a accurate dose. So I have friends that take a piece of chocolate every day. I have these little pills here that I'm not going to say the company, but you could just take a pill. They come in different strains. Um, some people make their, do it yourself, make a little tincture, enthusiast a little tincture, a little tea. I, I think it doesn't matter the, the vehicle that you use, as long as you have a safe supply and uh, you are careful about the dose. Again, you don't want to, make a mistake on the dose and then go driving. That would be a disaster. Not only could you, as someone who has a broken leg from getting hit by a car right now, you don't want to get into an accident, believe me, but also that would be terrifying. So I just think the most important thing is not the specific vehicle, whatever, you know, whatever people um, are comfortable with, but um, it has to be a safe supply. And you, part of it being a safe supply is the dosing has to be accurate and consistent. And if that's not the case, you actually can get into trouble doing this. And I, I do want to emphasize, again, I said this before, like 10% of people who take a macrodose have a bad trip and it's really terrifying. Um, a percentage of those say it was still helpful and they still experience growth and change. Um, and then I have seen a couple cases of people microdosing and just having a really, really weird and bad reaction. This one woman, as I said, had insomnia for like like complete lack of sleep for like weeks. And that's just a disaster. That's how you torture prisoners. So people just need to know there's so much enthusiasm about this stuff. People have to know that, you know, like all medicines, cannabis, any medication I prescribe, penicillin, I could give you for your strep throat and you could have a anaphylactic reaction. There's no free lunch with drugs and medicines and they all have their benefits, but they all have the risks. So I just urge people to, to be careful with the supply and with the dose and to really educate themselves before just taking the stuff, because you don't want to make a mistake. It's really, really terrifying.
0: Mm-hmm. And would you exercise caution when microdosing? I mean, the idea of microdosing is that you you aren't having any sort of psychoactive. Or effect, but would you recommend people exercise caution in driving or operating machinery? Or oh,
1: well, first of all, the first time they do it should be on a weekend when they don't have any responsibilities. Mm-hmm. That's a good way to roughly test dose and quality. You know, you don't want to do it for the first time before doing neurosurgery. Um, I think the jury's out. We don't know yet if it's potentially impairing. I mentioned before, I wouldn't feel comfortable doing a microdose of anything before going into my daily doctor job Um, because, you know, lives are on the line and I I wouldn't want anything, anything to be impairing for that. Of course, being a doctor is pretty impairing because it's so stressful and impossible these days, but I wouldn't want any chemical to be impairing. And, you know, I just think we need to err on the side of caution. Like you don't necessarily want your pilot to be using psychedelics a couple of days before flying. We had this, this was of course a macro dose, but we had the case recently where the pilot had this drug induced psychosis and tried to crash the plane about two months ago. I don't know if you remember that, but it was really yeah. weird. So yeah, I would, I would exert caution certainly until more research is done. And again, you know, it's, it's the illicit market. I can't emphasize this enough. So you don't really know if you're getting what dose you're getting because nobody's regulate, who's regulating this? Absolutely no one. So that makes it, again, that makes it more dangerous, but it also makes it so that I would exert caution, certainly before doing anything that's, um, you know, um, involves safety um, machinery or the lives of others. Mm -hmm.
0: Yes. I, I definitely agree with you in terms of like on a weekend, even if it's a small dose, keeping things very chill and easy before you understand and yeah, yeah, how, how your body's going to react. Cause everyone somebody. is so unique and different in terms of their constituency and their emotional state.
1: And right. And you tell someone in case you have a bad reaction, like this woman, I know had. You, you don't do it in isolation. You make sure that your community or your family, your partner, somebody knows you're doing it so that if you have a problem, they'll know what the problem is.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, I think that's so important. So any, yeah, any final wisdom or warnings that you would want people to know um, on this topic, just in general, of
1: microdosing? Just be educated consumers. That's mm-hmm. a good advice in general, but you particularly want to be educated consumers due to the changing legal landscape, the illegality, the illicit market, and the lack of guarantee of safe supply so just be educated consumers is all i'd say
0: mm-hmm. great well thank you so much peter i really appreciate your time and, and all your insight on this topic Thank you for
1: the great conversation emily i look forward to doing it again
0: sounds good okay have a good day Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Psychedelic Science for the People. We are seeking your support to help create and produce season five of this show. I'm linking our Indiegogo page in the show notes below. Please give what you can. Even a five or ten dollar donation goes a long way. If you enjoyed this show, please also consider subscribing and leaving us a five star review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much for your support. Sending you so much love and gratitude.